Good afternoon. It is so good to be with you guys today. I'm so thankful for the opportunity. I um, had been planning to come out and just worship with you one Sunday, and I mentioned that to your pastor not too long ago, and then he said, well, how about I have you preach? And I said, okay, I'll come and preach. Uh, but I, I've just enjoyed watching the development of this church. I spoke uh, when you guys were just forming, just kind of a small little group, and had the opportunity to, uh, to meet some of you early on. And wow, just to see this. Praise God uh, for His grace in planting a new church. Uh, so anyway, great to be here. Um, your pastor, James, was way too kind as he talked about me, one of my interns. I don't know what you said, Zamar, but I think you said to me, who does he think you are, or something like that. <laughs> and anyway, I have more kind things to say about him. He's just such an encouragement and uh, faithful, faithful pastor. So you guys are blessed, and you know that. Uh, let's turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Oh, another kind of exciting thing is we get to be in Romans chapter 7 today. So Romans chapter 7, if you know this chapter, particularly the end of it, it's one of the most debated chapters in church history. And so um, when Pastor James asked what I wanted to preach on, I kind of had mentioned Romans 7 almost as a joke. And he said, okay, sounds good. And so here we are, Romans chapter 7, one of the most debated. Uh, I'll get into the debate a little bit so you understand what I'm talking about, why this is one of the most debated passages. Um, but uh, it's a wonderful passage on the ability that we have to fight our sin. And so I want to ask if you would, could we stand together for the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 7? We're going to look at verses 13 through verse 25. And it says this, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me, through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, 
But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. I want to preach to you this morning on these verses, and I'm going to title my sermon, Freed to Fight. Let's pray together and ask God for His help. Father, we do thank You, Lord, for Your Word. We thank You for this chapter, for these verses. We thank You for the truth communicated here. And God, I pray that You would help me as I preach, that I would preach Your truth, not merely my own ideas, that You would open our hearts, that we might receive Your Word and be shaped and fashioned by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I read a sermon illustration. That's a terrible way to start a sermon, but I'm going to be honest. Uh, about an Alaskan bull moose. It was from a National Geographic magazine from some years ago. And it was uh, uh, the article in National Geographic was about this moose and how they fight in the fall. Uh, and the, the bull that has the strongest antlers is the bull that wins. Uh, and then what the article went on to say was that the fight in the fall is really won in the summer when the bulls eat. They eat and eat and eat during the summer months and they grow these strong bodies and antlers and then when they fight, the one who ate the most is going to be the victor. And the preacher went on to say this. He said, spiritual battles await. Satan will choose a season to attack. Will we be victorious or will we fall? Much depends on what we do now. And in acute fashion, he called it the bull moose, uh, moose principle. He said, uh, he, he said, it is this. Enduring, uh, enduring faith, strength, and wisdom for trials are best developed before they're needed. Meaning we don't wait to get into a time of spiritual temptation, sinful temptation rather, from Satan himself, from the enemy. We don't wait until those temptations come before we prepare ourselves. But the, the battle is actually won in the preparation process. Now, don't you know that if God has set you free, you are free? Go ahead and finish that for me. You are free indeed. Yet, yet, we still live in this world where we're tempted with all of these mini gods that offer you pleasure, and that offer you stuff, and that offer you ideas, and that offer you identity. And they come at you, and they tempt you. You need to understand that we are not set free from the presence of sin. We are set free from the power of sin. He who sets you free, you're free indeed from the power of sin. But listen, the presence of sin is still around us. It's, it's, it's still with us in our corrupt bodies. And so in some ways, an analogy that comes to my mind would be like a prisoner who has been unshackled. And the warrior king has come in and he's been able to unshackle the prisoner. And, and now the prisoner is freed 
to fight, to join the warrior king in this battle and to fight. We're freed from the shackles of sin. We're freed from the power of sin so that we might fight against our sin. So that's why I'm calling this sermon Freed to Fight. Now, sin will dominate you if you let it. I just want you to know that. You know, however powerful and strong I think I am, if I allow it, sin will destroy my life. And if I don't fight sin, I will live a life with no joy in the Lord. It will consume me. So I must learn how to fight my sin. But how? How do we do that? Where's the power that we have to fight against our sin? Is it in uh, listening to a bunch of motivational speeches? Is it in law-based morality, a list of to-dos and a list of to-don'ts? Is it in a pick-yourselves-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of sanctification? I would say it's none of those. Romans chapter 7 is, a, is famous as a very passionate and personal confession on Paul's own struggle with sin. Now today, this afternoon, I don't want to just merely tell you that you struggle with sin. I assume you already know that. I want to encourage you today and show you how Christ has freed you to fight. So how do we do it? Let me give you four principles from this passage. Number one, how do we fight sin? Number one, accept our responsibility. Accept our responsibility. So Paul begins this passage with a question. And if you would read through Romans 6, Romans 5, Romans 6, and into Romans 7, you're going to see that Paul's kind of going back and forth with Q&A, with himself. And he starts with another question in verse 13. And he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. That which is good here is a reference for Paul to God's own law. So God, Paul has been making a case in Romans for the fact that the law has come and instead of giving me life, I have death. And so then he's saying, hey, the law is good. God doesn't give us something bad. So the fact that God has morality and he's given us his law is a good thing. And so then he's asking this question, which is, which is a really good question to ask, and that is, if the law has actually ultimately brought death to me, does that mean that something which is good has, is responsible for my spiritual death? And then he quickly answers that by saying, by no means, absolutely not. Meaning we are sinners in our nature who are saved not by the good things we do, but by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Romans is all about the gospel. It's all about the fact that if you are a sinner, you can which by the way you are, you can turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ lived the life that I should have lived and that you should have lived. 
He died on the cross, thereby taking the judgment we deserved in his own body on the tree. Three days later, rose from the dead, looks across that uh, cavern of death and says, all who are weary, come to me. Turn from your sins and trust in me and you'll have forgiveness now. And one day you'll be freed from even the very presence of sin living together with God. That's the main message of Romans. Okay, so then what about the law? You see the, you see the, the challenge here. So what is the, the place of God's law in all of this? If we're saved by grace through faith. That's, that's what Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7 is really about. And he's showing us that the law has exposed our need for forgiveness. The law has exposed our sin, meaning God's law is not to blame for my sin, but rather I am to blame for my sin. It's my sinful response to God's perfect law that's the problem. He goes on to explain this in verse 13. He says, it was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You get his point here? He's saying so that sin might be shown to be sin, that it might become sinful beyond measure. What does he mean by sinful beyond measure? He's just saying, look, sin is really sinful. That's what he's saying. He wants us to see that the law has come to show us the exceeding sinfulness of sin. To show us how bad sin really is. Look at verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, meaning it comes from God. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So to summarize what he's telling us, he's, he's saying... That sin, not God's law, but sin itself is what has produced death in us. That is, what, that is what has produced destruction in our lives. That is what has produced decay in our lives. The law of God hits us and sin immediately begins to grow and metastasize and then manipulate us and it festers like a wound, and it causes us to become rebels by nature. I mean, think about it. God's law is good. So, like, for example, husbands, love your wives. That is good. Amen, wives? You can say amen. That is a good thing if there's wives in the room. Husbands, love your wives. Yet, we got husbands that have adulterous affairs. I mean, the, the, God doesn't per, call us to something bad. He calls us to something that is good. Yet sin causes the opposite uh, uh, response. Wives could have perfectly good husbands and, and, uh, and be having an, uh, an emotional, romantic affair with another man. I'm, what I'm simply saying is that the law is good, yet sin incites rebellion. That's why we do the bad things we do. Why does a man cheat on his wife? Why, why do kids disobey 
their parents. Why do kids, I re- recently read a story of a, of a kid who killed his own parents. And it reminds me of another story of a mother who killed her own kids. Why do these things happen? It's because of sin. It's because sin is exceedingly sinful. Like, why are we complainers? Why is it that, that we could have such a blessed life? Like, really, truly blessed with a pretty good life. You know, we got food on the table, we got a roof, you got people that love you, yet we're never satisfied. Always complaining, no joy in our life, always downcast, always hating our life, always grumbling. What causes us to look into the good graces of God and say, that's not enough for me? It's sin. What causes a boy at Mervo High School in Baltimore not too long ago to walk into a parking lot and shoot and kill another high school boy coming out of class? What causes a human being to have the audacity to think that they can take another human being's life? It's sin. It's the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Humans do crazy, stupid things that don't make sense. Why? It's because we're rebels against God. Now, social scientists and the news outlets, both, both left and right, try to diagnose the problem and can't really fully wrap their mind around it. You know, for some, it's parenting that's the problem. For others, it's the community that's the problem. For others, it's the schools that are the problem. For others, it's the family that's the problem. Or for others, it's the government that that is the problem. And in a sense, they're all right. Like, yes, true, that all plays a part into the problem. There, There is such a thing as, you know, systemic issues because we are all sinners. And so, therefore, all of our organizations and institutions that we create are, are, are infiltrated by sin, yet the problem is also very personal. And it has to do with my own rebellion against God. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that wars will always happen as long as I am warring against another human being, as long as I am prideful, as long as I am greedy, there's going to be wars between nations. The big and the small. The news can never report this because they, in order to do so, they would have to admit some kind of belief in God. But the issue is sin. It's that we are rebels against God, that we have given ourselves over to our sinful ways. It's our problem. My, my point is simply this. How do we fight sin? Number one, accept our responsibility. Accept our responsibility. The problem isn't God. The problem isn't God's law. The problem is us. Now, we don't just get saved and never again struggle with sin. That would be nice, wouldn't it? But it seems as if, in Romans chapter 7, Paul is saying, no, actually, as a Christian, there is an ongoing war with sin, an ongoing struggle with sin. Now, this is where we kind of get into the debate here. Like I said, this is one of the most debated passages for the last 2,000 years. 
And it's because if you look at verse 15 and verse 19, in particular, I'll read these. Verse 15, it says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Or verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Christians have debated this for millennia. Is Paul referring to his life before he got saved? Or is he referring to his life after he got saved? Is he saying, this is how my life was when I was a slave to sin? I did the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do. That's what my life used to be like. But now I have the power of the Holy Spirit, and I do the things that I want to do in God for Christ because I have the power of the Holy Spirit. Or is Paul referring to his ongoing current reality? Paul the Apostle writing, saying, I don't do the things that I do want to do, and vice versa. On one hand, it seems as if Paul is referring to his previous unregenerate pre-Christian self. Why? Well, it's because he, he uses these terms throughout Romans, such as death and slavery as it relates to sin. We used to be uh, uh, alive to sin. Now we're dead to sin. And we're alive unto God. God has set us free from sin. We're no longer a slave to sin. This is a big theme in Romans. And so it seems as if Paul is saying this is the struggle of the non-Christian. The person who's still a slave to sin. Still dead in their trespasses and sins. Not alive to Jesus. They can't do what they should do. But then on the flip side, it seems that maybe he's talking about his current regenerate self because he says that he desires the law and he wants to please God. A non-Christian wouldn't say that. And so which one is it? Is Paul referring to his previous non-Christian self or is he referring to his Christian self. Well, like I said, it's been debated. So Augustine uh, said, 5th century uh, uh, North African theologian said that it was, uh, Augustine actually first believed that Paul was referring to his pre-Christian self. And then Pelagius came along and said, I think Paul's referring to his pre-Christian self, the non-Christian, and Augustus then changed his mind on it. Um, was he just trying to disagree with Pelagius? I don't know. <laughs> but he flipped after Pelagius. And, and, and uh, let's see, the Arminians tended to say that it was more the non-Christian that would struggle in this way, not the Christian. Whereas the Reformers said that this is the normal life, the normal struggle for a, 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 a regular Christian. And then there came along another movement which was sort of like a hybrid between the two. It was like, yeah, saved, kind of, you're saved, but you're not yet sanctified, filled with the Holy Spirit saved. And so this is referring to that, high, that person in the middle ground. The Christian, yes, but, they, but they're not yet sanctified. And so they have to move from being a Romans 7 Christian to a Romans 8 Christian, they would say. Um, all right, that's the little bit of the debate. That's not going to be on the exam. You don't have to worry about all that. Um, but just, just for what it's worth. So, you know, he, it comes down to this. Verse 5. Look at, go back to verse 5 in chapter 7. He says, For while we were living in the flesh. While we were living in the flesh. Some people would say that Paul is basing this off of Romans chapter 
uh, 7 verse 5, and he's saying, he's elaborating on our life in the flesh before we were saved. But then verse 6 comes along, and he says, but now we are released from the law, and we serve in the new way of the Spirit. I think Paul is talking here about the mature Christian struggling with sin. I don't think he's connecting it with verse 5. I I think he's connecting it with verse 6, saying this is the experience of being released from the law and serving in the new way of the Spirit. This is what it feels like, and it's not always pretty. I think that's what he's saying. We realize that there is a struggle, and without God, we have no ability to overcome our sin. I think that's what Paul is saying. Why? Why do I think he's talking about the Christian here? Well, first, Paul is talking in the first person. And so the most natural reading is that Paul is talking about his current reality as the apostle writing the letter to the Romans saying, I still struggle with sin in this way. That's the natural reading of the text. He also says in verse 18, he says, I have the desire to do what is right. A non-Christian wouldn't say that. A non-Christian can't say that. But Paul says, I desire to do what's right. Verse 20, he says, it's no longer I who do it. Meaning, he's he's saying that there's a difference now between the new creation status that I have versus the old flesh that I'm wrapped in. Verse 22, he goes on to say, I delight in the law of God in in my inner being. Again, a non-Christian wouldn't say that. Non-Christians don't delight in the law of God, but Paul does here, even though he struggles with sin. Finally, there's spiritual fight language here. If you look at verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You see where he says, so then, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. That to me sounds like what he's saying is war. War. Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, this is what I do. I go to war. And I serve the law of God with my mind. So how do we fight? First, like I said, admit our responsibility. Secondly, secondly, admit our instability. Admit our instability. Uh, Here's why I say instability. James chapter 1 verse 8 says the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let me give you an example of double-mindedness. The average American will spend $100,000 a year. I'm sorry, in their lifetime. $100,000 in their lifetime. (laughs) You're like, what? (laughs) What kind of money does this preacher make? All right. No, the average American will spend $100,000 in their lifetime on fitness. For example, $34 a month for a gym membership. $33 a month on clothes. The fitness industry is $100 billion a year. Yet, two out of ten Americans exercise as much as they should. It seems as if we, the people, 
like the idea of working out more than we actually like working out. Or maybe we like workout clothes more than we like working out. Now, let me give you another example of double-mindedness. You want to get up early in the morning, but you keep going to bed late at night. Uh, you want to write a little bit more, yet every time you sit down to write, you're looking at TikTok. You want to hang out with your friends more. And every time your friends call and say, hey, do you want to hang out? You have absolutely nothing to do, but you say, I'm sorry, I can't, I'm too busy. Double-mindedness. You want to get serious about your health, yet you find yourself continuing to go back to Dunkin' Donuts. You want to lay off alcohol, yet you continue to go get another six-pack. My point is this, is your actions don't match what you think you want to do. That's double-mindedness. Now, Paul is confessing, I believe, that even as Christians, we struggle with double-mindedness. That our actions don't, Paul says, I don't even understand my own actions. I do what I don't want to do. And what I don't want to do, I do it. Verse 15. Do you know this feeling? I wonder if this resonates with you a little bit. You know, God awakens you to obedience. And you actually, you sit in church and you read your Bibles in the morning, whatever you do, and you really want to live a holy and godly life. Yet, you continue to go back to these broken cisterns. You continue to drink again and again from the salt water of sin, which does not satisfy. You take two steps forward in your Christian life, and then you take eight steps backward in your Christian life. It's as if the chains are released, and then you just go back down into the dungeon because that's what you're comfortable with. It's as if Satan is a prowling, roaring lion, and yesterday you were vigilant, and you were watching out for him, and you were on your guard, and now today you're getting a little too chummy with the beast. It's, a, it's, it's a, as if the burden was lifted at Calvary, and then you pick it up, and you put it back on because you miss the way that it feels. Romans 8, 19. For I do not do the good I want. I'm sorry, Romans 7, 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? He goes on to explain himself in verse 20. He says, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I uh, who, I'm sorry, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me, verse 21. So I find it to be a law. Now, here's what he refers to as the law of sin in verse 23 and verse 25. I find it to be a law. He's using this in a metaphoric kind of way. That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Well, this sounds like Cain and Abel. After Abel was killed by his brother Cain, and God comes to Cain and says, hey, if you don't do well, sin lies close at the door. Sin is waiting to destroy you, to, waiting to, 
devour you. This is the law of sin. Sin is always just waiting for that moment to pounce. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. If we're going to be honest, I think we have to admit that sometimes the law of God feels strict. You know, as if God is keeping us from something that's good, as if he's keeping us from some kind of real pleasure, from some kind of real joy. And if we're honest, I think there's sometimes where we want to free ourselves from God's law and just indulge in our fleshly cravings. Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the kind of life that indulges in sinful flesh. He talks about sexual impurity. He talks about lusting after someone that is not yours. He talks about sexual intimacy with the same sex. He talks about envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventing ways, inventing, strategizing ways of doing evil, being disobedient to their parents. Now, we read that, and we know that Paul here is talking about those who are rejectors of God, those who God's God's actually hardened their hearts. This is the wicked of the world. But even as we read that, isn't there a sense in which we, we see ourselves in there a little bit? Like, I wish I could say, none of that describes me. But I, I'm tempted in various ways. And so then we got to ask ourselves, well, wait a second, what is then the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian? If Christians are not automatically freed from sin... Freed from all of these things, never again to be tempted or struggled. What's the difference between us? And you see, the skeptic comes along and the skeptic says, you see, this is the problem with you guys. You act like you're holy. You talk about being a holy church. You talk about being a pure church. But at the end of the day, you know that you are all sinners. So what's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian? Well, here's the difference. There's a lot of differences. Here's the one I want to point out. We confess our double-mindedness. We take responsibility for our sin, and we don't remain there. We don't sin uninhibited. We grieve. True Christians grieve their inability to completely conform to to the image of Christ. We mourn the fact that our fantasies don't don't align with God's finest. So, So we see Romans 7, and what we see here is first that that we categorically, as Christians, and Romans 7 categorically denies that Christians can, can claim perfection. So if you're not a Christian here and this is your thought, like, oh, I thought Christians claimed to be perfect. I'm telling you, we don't. We don't claim to be perfect. But what's the difference? If you are a Christian, what you know is that you hate your sin. You want to fight your sin. 
you don't want to remain in your sin. You long for godliness. Well, that leads me to say this, that there is then no simple fix for sin. We can't just simply say, let go and let God, or let's go from being a Romans 7 Christian to being a Romans 8 Christian. Sanctification is not a once and for all sort of thing. Your justification is, meaning God does declare you to be righteous once and for all, but that's not to say that you're immediately sanctified. No, we still struggle with sin. James Boyce put it this way. He, he, he asks a question, makes a statement as a question. He says, is sanctification an awareness of how good we are becoming, or is it a growing sense of how sinful we really are? Constantly turning and depending on Jesus, true sanctification is the latter. Meaning, when we realize how sinful we are and we start peeling back the layers and we find more and more sin. I remember one young man that I was uh, discipling after he was uh, a Christian for about a year or so and, and he was so discouraged because he said, every time I'm peeling back this layer and I think I'm getting over some sin, I, I pull it back and I see that there's something else underneath it that was driving me to that thing. You know, have you guys ever had that experience? And you, and you just get discouraged and you're like, will I ever be perfect? Well, the answer is not on this side of death. Sanctification is that experience of discovering how sinful we are and how much we need to rely on Christ. This is what Christians do. We trust in Jesus. How do we fight against sin? Number one, accept your responsibility. Number two, uh, admit our instability. And number three, know our inability on our own. Sometimes we try to fight our sin like an iPhone trying to charge itself. Um, I, I just got a new iPhone. It's sitting over there. Uh, I had to get a new one because my last iPhone just stopped work. You know, I don't know if any of you work for Apple, but... If we could get this figured out, like, why do they only, they cost so much money and they last 1.5 years, you know. I had this, uh, I had an iPhone and I plugged it in and uh, let it charge all night and uh, woke up in the morning and I looked at my phone and it was, the battery was dead. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, my, my phone's not working. And then I realized that the charger wasn't plugged in. <laughs> you know, an iPhone can't charge itself, all right? And so I was so happy. When I realized my error, I didn't plug the charger in. So then I plugged the charger in, and it didn't charge. And I was like, okay, the phone is the problem. My point is this. Sometimes we think that we have it in ourselves to fix ourselves, that we can just kind of charge ourselves with some kind of holiness, that we can figure out a way to go deep enough inside of ourselves to figure out our answers and then to change ourselves. But Paul said this, and look at verse 18, nothing good dwells in me. That is, he clarifies it, in my flesh. Meaning Paul has the Holy Spirit of God, amen? 
Paul is a new creation in Christ, yet nothing good dwells in his flesh. Meaning, he has no ability on his own without the help of the Holy Spirit to change himself. In my flesh, nothing good dwells. The problem with any kind of simple fix to sin is, is, is that we think that we can somehow find it in ourselves to change ourselves. And so then we come up with all of these man-made rules, and we use law and guilt to try to change people, and we use shame to try to change ourselves. Christians have come up with historically all sorts of additional rules above and beyond the Scriptures. You know, the Bible says, don't get drunk with wine. And the Christians say, don't even look at the stuff. Uh, the, the Bible says, do not lust. And then the Christians say, well, what you wear is the problem. The Bible says, uh, um, you know, use uh, uh, language that builds people up. And then we have rules that say, you know, don't, don't say darn <laughs> or whatever. Just like rule-based Christian. If we can cr- come up with enough rules, then we can somehow form holiness in ourselves. And, and actually the world does this as well. If you think of like worldly rules, if you would, you know, the way that we use social media, sanctified social media, you know, posting the right thing at the right time, uh, whoever uh, uses the latest and most politically correct terminology, whoever shouts the loudest wins the argument, meaning we, we think that we can somehow turn ourselves into right people. Yes, the truth will set you free, but here's my point. Presenting, presenting truth without the power of the Holy Spirit does nothing. It's the Holy Spirit that changes us. It's not because the truth is the problem, but it's because I am unable without the power of God to obey the truth. And that's Paul's point. Meaning we don't have it in us to fight. Look at verse 18 continued. He says, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, some people might use this then as an excuse to sin. I remember uh, chatting with a friend of mine some time ago, and he was in ongoing, unrepentant sin, and I was kind of confronting him on it. And, uh, and he was like, you know, Pastor, he said, that here's the thing. Even Paul said, I do the things that I don't want to do, and the things I don't want to do, I do do. You know? And even Paul said that I don't have the ability to do what's right. And I'm like, bro, I think you're missing the point. Like, Paul doesn't say this as an excuse for us to just continue on in our sin. But rather, it's actually the opposite. What we discover here is that we don't have to continue on in our sin, but we are, as my title is, freed to fight. For the person who says they can't overcome sin misses it. But on the flip side, the person who says I'm completely sanctified and I don't struggle with sin also misses it. Both of those responses are ultimately not Christian. But the Christian sees Romans 7, reads it, and says, this is my story. 
I look inside of myself and I discover that there is this ongoing war with my body, with my flesh, with my desires. I want to do all of these things. I'm constantly feeling it. I'm constantly struggling against it. This is my story and I don't have the ability internally within myself to make any change or any difference. But then I look to Christ. And that's where Paul takes us. Look at verse 25. Well, before I read it, before I read it, let me give you my summary here. First, how do we fight sin? First, accept our responsibility. Second, admit our instability. Third, know our inability. And fourth, see our Savior. Verse 24, he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Don't you see what he's doing here? He's painting this picture that we all experience and know. And he's leading us to, if you're a believer, he's leading us to the cry of every believer. And that is this cry of desperation. Who can deliver me? Who can deliver me from this body of death? Where can I go for help? Where can I turn for a refuge? Where can I find power over my sinful desires? I looked inside of myself and I just saw double-mindedness. I looked at my hands and my feet and I just saw uh, things that I want to do with them that don't please God. The key then for Paul was to no longer look inside of himself to find help in defeating his sin, but to look outside of himself to the person and work of Jesus. And so then he says, and I'll read it again in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I searched all over. I couldn't find anybody greater. I looked high and low. I still couldn't find anybody greater. Nobody greater. Nobody greater than him. The victory that we have over our sin is not in me, but it's in Jesus. What do I mean by that? Two things as I close. Number one, in Christ, number one, we have no condemnation. I can't really preach Romans 7 up until verse 25 without stepping into Romans chapter 8 and reading verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what we find in Christ. And if you're not a Christian here, you are invited to turn to Christ and enjoy this new reality of no condemnation. And if you are in Christ, how do we fight our sin? No. Number one. That there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Many years ago, there was a couple in Baltimore uh, who who, uh, was out late into the night at their church service. And while they were out, they didn't know it, but a young man, uh, a teenager from the streets uh, who was homeless and who was hungry had broke into their house through their window. They came home from their uh, church Bible study, and uh, they walked up their little narrow Baltimore staircase, and they went up into their second floor bedroom and got ready for bed, and they went to sleep. All the while, this young boy is in their home. Uh, In the middle of the night, 
He's still in there. The husband gets up to use the restroom, and he's walking toward the the stairs in their house, and he meets the boy face to face. And the boy has a gun in his hand, and he points it right at the old man. And they just freeze and stare at each other for a moment. And the old man says to the teenager, he says, what are you doing? What do you want? And the boy said, I'm here to rob you. And they just stared at each other. And the, the, the old man said, what do you need? And he said, I'm hungry. I need food. And he said, why don't I make you some food? The teenager dropped the gun, dropped it on the floor. The old man picked it up. They walked down into the kitchen. The, the wife by this time was up, as you can imagine. They both come down, middle of the night, fire up the stove, and they start cooking this kid food. The husband sits down at the table with them, and they, they hear the story, and, and she's making this elaborate meal, and then they sit into the late hours of the night. They eat with this boy, feeding him out of their own refrigerator, at their own table, from their own resources, showing him kindness and grace and love. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God invited his enemies, us, to the table. He, he, out of his own resources, sent his son to die for us, to cover us, to forgive us, to adopt us into his family, out of his own resources, in his own house. He loves us. That's my first point as we close. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Secondly, secondly, we have sanctification. We grow. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is as you are in the Word, as you're studying, as you're part of the church. We, we stop focusing on our sin. We start looking to Jesus more and more. And the more we look to Christ, the more we grow. Look, we will stay in Romans 7 until the day we die. But we will also experience the power of Romans 8 until we die. And I encourage you to read that this evening. The more we see the glories of Christ, the more our desires for sin grow dim. The more we look into who Jesus is, the more we encounter him with his people and in his word, the less we want to sin. So turn your eyes on Jesus. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen? Amen. So as my story goes on of this couple in Baltimore, the very next day, they went down, downtown and they officially began an adoption process to adopt this boy into their own home. And that's our story. Enemies of God changed, adopted into God's own family. Isn't it amazing 
that God does everything for his own glory. He does everything for his own purposes. And God, in, for his own glory, for his own purposes, in his sovereignty, has left us in these fleshly bodies. Isn't that interesting? Just think about that with me for a second. God could have, if he wanted to, when we get justified, when we get saved, immediately just take us home to glory and take us out of this world. But God has left us in this world in these bodies of sin for his glory, for his purposes. Why? Well, I don't know if, if, if you're like me. But sometimes I think, man, I've been a Christian for so long, and I'm still struggling with sin. How is it that God could love me? After, uh, you know, I've been, I've been a Christian for decades, and I'm still not getting it. How is it that he could love me? Oh, doesn't that make much of his grace? Doesn't that make us praise God all the more? That we would though we are still imperfect, have his full acceptance, living with no condemnation, that gives us the opportunity to praise God. Look, I would have given up on myself by now, but God hasn't given up on me, and God hasn't given up on you. If your failures haven't stopped God from loving you, I wonder if you can praise him. If, if Christ has become more glorious than your sin, even though you're still tempted to sin, I wonder if that leads you to praise Him. If you have the freedom to fight against your sin, I wonder if it leads you to praise God. Do you know this Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, see Christ and find something better in Him than anything sin can give you. This is how we fight. We look to Jesus. He is our hope. He is the one that we praise, for he alone is worthy. Amen? Father, we thank you for this passage. We ask that you would help us as we fight against our sin, that we would never be content, that we would never be happy in our sin, but that we would always hate it, that we would always long for something better, And that that would push us to enjoy the grace and the mercy of Christ. Keep us in our faith, God, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.